Hello everyone, welcome to a new episode of Dubar Stars. Today we have the star of the city. I'm sure everyone knows him in town. He's the one and only Mr. Spencer Dodge. What an introduction! A star! That's the least we can say about you. Spencer Lodge is the chairman of founder of Blue Thinking Group. He's the founder as well of uh, making uh, make it make, make it happen, happen university. university. The author of Making It Happen, the book, and uh, he's all over the place: Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. He's even on TikTok. Spencer Lodge is the most handsome 50 years old man you can ever see. Everyone's wish is to hit 50 and still look like him. I'll take that one. I'm definitely taking that one. Spencer, thank you so much for coming on the it's show. It's an absolute honor. Thank you for having me. I'm super happy, Spencer, on your podcast. You have more than 100 episodes. You interviewed the biggest mind in the world. And today I'm so delighted to have the pleasure to interview you. So, uh, speaking of the podcast, what I want to know first is like always when we see you interviewing entrepreneurs, you're always like happy, so focused, energetic. But there's a side of you that always shows when you're interviewing people that had to go through mental uh, health issues or suicidal or something super dark. Why is that? I think because I can identify with it. I think that meeting, meeting people that have got a story must bring out memories of me being a boy and the feelings that I went through. I noticed that I always, as a young person, and even today, I, I always would get emotional if I watched a movie where someone's back was against the wall or someone was the underdog or someone was downtrodden. Be- because I used, to, I used to want to champion them winning, you know, and I used to really get behind them. And I'd be the kid watching the TV going, go on, you can do it, you can do it, even if it was a movie. And so I think that this, this stems from a lot that happened in my childhood. And whilst my childhood for, for many people wasn't, wasn't that exciting, I think that there was some stuff in there that made me think like that. And then when I now meet people on my podcast, I get a chance to really dig into how they feel or how their situation made them feel and what they did to to overcome it. And then it probably gives me some lessons and some value or maybe even peace of mind to know that maybe I wasn't the only person that went through problems and there are other people out there that struggled too. Talk to me about your childhood, take me back there. Let's go 49 years back. Well, um, I was born to a mum and dad that are really incredible people um, and as a kid the first seven years of my life I think the, 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 the thing I didn't, I didn't like, you don't remember much about that but the thing I didn't like is my mum and dad didn't get on very well um, and there was a bit of violence in there and so I was aware of that and then my dad and mum got divorced when I was seven dad went bankrupt and then had to start again mum had nothing because dad had gone bankrupt and so I think watching watching two people have to restart with nothing and build again was, was great for me to, to really understand that it took a lot of hard work and dedication to get anywhere. I can't say I wasn't loved. I think that um, my mum and my dad did their best. I think every parent tries to do their best and it's easy to criticise them for what they didn't do, but most of the time they're just doing their best. But school wasn't good for me. I didn't enjoy school. Secondary school wasn't a, a good experience Were you bullied? 
Big time, yeah. But I think I had ADHD as well. I wasn't really interested in what was going on in class. I didn't leave with any qualifications. I, I just didn't have the patience for it. And because I didn't have the patience for it, I, I, I was born in a generation where university was essential for a great career. Yeah. Nowadays, you see people saying, don't go to university for a great Start career. Yeah, 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 be an entrepreneur, you know. Universities for teaching you old stuff. But when I was a kid, if you went to uni, you were going to do well. If you didn't, then you'd probably just have a, an average job in, you know, in a mediocre world that you lived in. And so it put me off of maybe fulfilling some of the ambitions and dreams that I might have kind of cultivated as I was a kid. So you felt you didn't fit in and all of the surrounding back then? I never fit in, yeah. I felt, I felt a sense of abandonment because my dad, mum and dad got divorced, dad left, dad went overseas. And that sense of abandonment really, I think, made me feel like I, I, I was maybe not loved or alone or unappreciated. But, you know, I can sit and tell this story, but I'm sure people have got much, much worse stories than mine, you know? No, actually, this is very important because, like, as I was telling you and everyone listening to Dubai Stars, this podcast is about people coming to Dubai without having no friends, no resources, no money and making it big. So we're here to understand what shaped you in a very young age to make you the person you are today. For me, when I, someone says persistency, it's equals pencil lot. Like, I cannot think of any more persistent person <laughs> more than you. Thank you. You know, so that's why we're trying to figure out, like, what, like, why or where you come from. Some people have a why that's a positive why, and some people have a why that's a negative. It's like a, a why, a positive why. I want to do it because I, 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 wanna, I want to achieve something. I want to be great. I have great ambitions. Or there's some people out there that just want to prove somebody wrong. Like the underdog. Mm -hmm. The underdog has to prove something. It's almost like, it, it's, it's like the kid that was bullied. When he, when he first stands up to the bully and he punches the bully in the face, he's kind of got his revenge. He's got his, his comeuppance and he's, he's taken away that heavy cloud that was over him and that weight on his shoulders. And I think that being bullied at school, I for years wanted to prove the bullies wrong. And I was saying this the other day to somebody else. These people that bullied me, they've probably forgotten my name. But you haven't. They, they, I know, I know exactly what their yeah. names are. Justin Zimmerman <laughs> and Paul Fowler. So there you go. But they, they, they don't even know I exist, you know. But, and they've got no idea of the impact they have had on my life. But their negativity is, uh, or, or their bullying created a real positive drive for me to try and prove something. And also when you go to school and you don't do very well and you leave without qualifications, you've got society telling you you're going to fail as well. So there's the, an element of that that makes you go, okay, I'll show you. And I think that when I got into selling, I found something I could be really good at and I could be admired for. And I'd never been admired. And so to be admired and to be maybe respected and maybe feared as a competitor was something that was a new experience for me when I was probably 19 or 20 years old. And it felt really good. It was the fulfillment yeah. for yourself. And when you feel really good about yeah. something, you're like, hold on a minute. I, and you, you know, I worked in an office. There were 100, 100 guys in this office, 100 people. And it was all open plan, much like your office. But I felt like I belonged. And because I felt like I belonged, that was the first place I'd ever belonged. And so it's a good feeling. You know, and whilst not everybody likes you, 
the fact is, when, when you work in a sales environment, there are other competitive people around you. And so you get revered if you do well, or you get revered if you work really hard and you don't do so well, because people respect hard work as well, you know? And so both of those things I think worked in my favor and they, that played into the success I had in my career. I think a lot of people in their careers don't necessarily find what's gonna help them or what they're gonna be good at straight away. But I was lucky, I was 20, 19 years old and I went to work in London in, a, in a, a, an office equipment company. I sold photocopying machines and fax machines. And I'd knock on doors and make cold calls and knock on some more doors. And, but I loved it. How yeah. did you get in this business? Like My mum had a recruitment consultancy. Okay. And um, she got me three job interviews. And I didn't have a car at the time. So the first job I got was a trainee car salesman at BMW. And they gave a, a 316 BMW. And that I'm must like, be exciting. I'm like, whoa, you know, and it was a 316. And all I cared about was the, co the company car. <laughs> I didn't care about the job. And I was fired after the first month for having a bad attitude. <laughs> <laughs> and so then there were two other jobs. One was a real estate broker, estate agent, and the other one was office equipment. Well, the estate agent job didn't have a car, but the office equipment one did. It wasn't a brilliant car, but it was a car. So I took that job. And, um, and they, they taught me how to sell, like really taught me how to sell. Um, and I was, I was taught by epic people. Uh, and we all have those people in our lives, don't we? we remember, they, they kind of, they guided us, they showed us the way. And we have a, an inbuilt loyalty to them as human beings. We always want to see them do well. And those two guys, Eric Pomfret and uh, David Schillingus, were the two guys that taught me. And they taught me how to sell. And once I learned how to sell, it was like, I can do this. It's like, I belong here. Tell me about your first paycheck. <laughs> what was it? What did you do with it? Who did you call? I know exactly the deal. So it was a sale I made. I even know the office of, of the company. I know exactly where they are. They're right next to Tower Bridge in London. Um, and my patch was, was EC3. So the financial center of London's got four postcodes. EC3 is one of them. And so that was my zip code. I couldn't go anywhere else. I couldn't cross the street to EC2. I couldn't go to EC, EC3. That was it. And there was a, um, a shipping company, a ship broking company. And um, they needed a new fax machine. And I sold them um, a plain paper fax machine. And I remember it very clearly. And, uh, they, and, and usually you would sell these types of machines on, on leases, so they'd pay per month over three yeah. or five years. But they, they wanted to buy it cash. And they gave me a check for £5,200. And I remember I'd never seen a check like that before. <laughs> and, and the commission, I think, was something like maybe £1,000 or, or £900 or something. But it was like, he just gave me a check for £5,000. It's like, wow. And I drove back to the office and then in the office we had a bell and I rang the bell and I had my check and my order for and I'm like, yes. And uh, got a round of applause and I'm like, yes. You know, it was all worth it. And uh, yeah, very good memories of that, you know, very good memories because it was lots of young people working hard. You know, I used to drive into London every day. So I wasn't one of these guys that was going to the pub and drinking. I was the kid that was literally finishing work late, wanting to avoid the rush hour, so I'd wait till later and leave at seven in the evening and drive an hour home. Um, but yeah, I, I belonged, I loved it. And when you hold that check, did you call your mom? Make her proud? 
Not with that check. I think I got home that night and done, I told her I'd done my first deal. And I think she made me my favorite. My favorite food at the time was lasagna. And I think she made me <laughs> lasagna. And um, so, yeah, I was, I was very proud because the, the, the basic salary, I remember it, the basic salary was really low. And, and the only thing you would get on top of your basic salary was a fuel card. So to pay for your petrol. So I knew I could get to work because I had this fuel card. And um, and even though the basic, I think the first month I got nothing, it was the second month I got something. And that 900 pound was like, it was like a king's ransom. It honestly was just that this, I've got 900 pound. Okay, it's 1989, so it, it's worth more than it is today. Yeah, of course. But gee, man, nine, you know what the amount of jeans and shirts you can buy, <laughs> the nice clothes you can buy with 900 pounds when you're 19? It was just like, that was just a, yeah, epic. So uh, how many years you stayed in that company? So I stayed in that industry from 1989 to, to, nine, to 2003, so four years. So how long it took you to be the number one sales and that floor, the most hated guy? I wasn't. Really? I never was. So there, there was always somebody doing better than me. So I was the number one trainee. Mm -hmm. And then when I, so I was a trainee, I think for nine, 10 months. And I moved up to being a salesperson. And I, and I was, I, was ne I might have had the odd month I was number one but I was never number one for the year. But there were seasoned professionals in there. You know, guys, guys, there were like 28-year-old men, you know, there were 30-year-old real men, you know, not me, this kid. Who's this kid in the corner, Like, I used to look at these guys that were 28, 30 years old, like they're real professionals, you know? Um, so yeah, but, but, but I did good, you know, I was, I was doing good. I was earning, I don't know, maybe 50,000 pounds a year. My friends back in, in, from home were probably earning 15,000 or 10,000 pounds a year. So I was doing really well. Um, but yeah, I wasn't, I was never the top salesman there. So that place is like created the competition between you guys and always shaping you, made you always, you want to work more, put yeah. on the more effort yeah. to reach where you are. Spencer, tell me when was the first time you fell in love? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, man. There's so many times I've fallen in love. I know, I'm joking. <laughs> Who was the first person I fell in love with? Um, uh, mm. Let me rephrase this one. When did you meet your first wife? Uh, my first wife. So I met my first wife when I was living in Thailand. So my first wife is Kelly and it was an unusual story. So I, I, had, I was a financial advisor in Bangkok. I had some clients, I had some friends. And one of my clients said, do you want to come around for a barbecue this evening? I said, look, I'm coming, I'll be coming back from Hong Kong. I, I think I land about six o'clock. I'm not sure what time I'll be back. But if I get back in time, I'll go over. Anyway, and she worked, uh, this, this lady worked in a big advertising agency. So about nine o'clock, I, I turn up at this barbecue. And one of my friends from school is there that I've not seen since school. And I'm like, what are you doing here? And he was um, backpacking around Asia. And he was with this girl called Kelly who I kind of knew of. She wasn't at my school. She was at a school up the road, but he had been dating her for years. He was one of those kids at school yeah. that had the same girlfriend forever. And you know, that, I'd never understood that. It's like anyone that had a girlfriend <laughs> for like two years, it was like two years was forever, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, no, we've been together for two years. So what happened is this, this girl was there. We, it was great to see this, this Tim Eastwood, his name is. It was great to see Tim. Um, and I said, look, let's hang out over the course of the next few days. And so we went and hung out in the city and we went wakeboarding and different stuff we did together. And I really liked 
Kelly. And I'm like, are you two together still? She's like, no, I'm here for a job interview with an advertising agency. And I knew that Tim was traveling. So I said, we'd meet up, but we're not together anymore. And so we hung out for a few days and then, and then she got offered the job, but I was actually leaving and moving. And so she said to me, look, I've been offered the job. We can get to know each other. I'll be back in two months. I've got to give my notice in, but I'll be back in two months and we can spend some time together. Maybe if you come to England, I'll see you there. And um, I was like, yeah, maybe, but I think I'm going to be leaving Bangkok. I think I'm going somewhere else. And so I said, if you, if you want a, you know, a relationship with me, you can't take the job. You're going to have to give that idea up and come and live with me in West Long Africa. Long will not work. Yeah. And so she decided not to take the job. And she wow. came with me and we went to live in Nigeria. And my dad was there at the time and worked there. And, um, but she couldn't, um, she couldn't live with me as a resident in Nigeria unless we were married. And so we got married and that's pretty much how we met. Yeah, so that's the story. I've not, not thought about that for a long time. Thought that this podcast is wrong, you know, I'm gonna guess. Wow, blindly. And uh, the fruits from this marriage is like, you have two beautiful daughters, right? Yeah, two great girls. So I've got uh, Taylor, who's 21, Kadia, who's 18. Kadia's just started university. Taylor's at university. And so, yeah, she's, uh, my ex-wife has done a good job bringing them up. And I have a good relationship with both my girls. And uh, yeah, I think so, if, I, if I'm proud of anything, I'm proud of that. That's your achievement. That's that, the biggest that, achievement. That, it's hard, you know. I think a lot of people don't get it. It's, you know, and, and kids go through ups and downs as they develop and grow and, you know, teenage years and stuff. But to get two good kids that understand the difference between right and wrong, that didn't play truant at school, didn't get into drugs and smoking and alcohol so much and are committed to, to their futures and their careers and are respectful to others. I think it was, you know, it's, it's hard work, but if you do do that and you do achieve it, then every parent was, will always be very proud of that. What are the characteristics that your kids got from you? They're very different. So my eldest is just like me. So if she, she's very quick-witted. I mean, she should be a salesperson. She's, she's got it all, you know. She's, she's got an answer to everything very quickly. She's smart. She's fast-thinking. She's action-taking. She's no-nonsense, no kind of, like, waffle. So, and I, and I can really identify with that. My youngest is completely different. She is more laid back than a sofa. She's just, <laughs> she is so chilled out. You know, if there was a race, she would want you to win. You know, yeah. no, you win. No, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, she, she just wants to be happy. And, and that, that kind of drives her, which for me, I don't think I ever, not until my later life, I never looked for happiness. I looked for other things. And I think my, my eldest is looking for other things. My youngest, she just wants to be happy. She wants, she was bullied at school. So she wants people to like her. And she wants to have friends. And she started university on Monday this week. And she said, I sent her a message. I said, how's it going? I, I, I'll tell you what it said, because it's really quite special. Okay, because I've never heard her write a message like this before. I said, how's, how was it going? And she wrote, she wrote the following. Um, Kadia. I said, how's it going? She said, Dad, it's amazing. My dream is coming true. Wow. And it was just like, wow, how amazing is that, you know, to get a message? I, I didn't know what to say to it, but she's just happy. And when she's happy, she, 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 she can achieve anything when she's happy. Whereas almost like me, I need pain to be successful. So it's interesting to see the differences.
I totally understand. I can super relate with you. Uh, Spencer, I want to get to that side. It's like uh, when the divorce happened and why it happened. So we lived together in West Africa, we lived together in Brazil, and then we were moving back to Europe, and my wife wanted to spend a bit of time with her family. And Cece said, can I spend a couple of months in England while you set up in the new location, which was Holland? And I agreed to do that. And I was working 18 hours a day, five days a week, flying home from Amsterdam to London every Friday evening. It's only a short flight, and I was exhausted but she was looking forward to the weekend because she'd not seen me all week and she made plans. Whereas Friday night, all I wanted to do was get home and fall asleep on the sofa. Um, and, and slowly, I just think we just started to fall out of love with each other. And I think that, it, and it, it's hard because I think, I think people do that. And I think some people work really hard at making it work and then other people say to themselves you know this is the wrong person and then they stay there for, for many years miserable um, unhappy that's right and uh, there's many people that have done it you know i've done it as well um but we got to a point where we just i would we, we just weren't getting on and it wasn't right for the children to see us not being friends and when we were with other people i.e if there was a group of people it was fine Everything looked amazing. It was yeah. a wonder, but, but it also was fine. It was funny. It was, we had a nice time when there was other people around. So if we were at a dinner party or we were in a restaurant and there was 10 of us or six of us or whatever, it was fun. But when it was just the both of us, um, I think we both realized that we, we both had different dreams and hopes and aspirations in life. And one day we had to, we had to have a, a really honest conversation and that's how the relationship came to an end. So uh, what happened to you during this time? I'm sure like you had the mixed emotions, you mentally you were like not knowing what to do. During my divorce, so that, yeah. was to, that, was, that was before I came to Dubai. And it, it are very mixed emotions. Yeah, you, I mean, you, you question everything. And you also have people in your family that guide you completely different ways. So some people say, stay and make it work. And other people say, leave and be happy. And, and so you don't actually get you know, any answers that are really conclusive. You have to come up with it yourself. Yeah. But then what happens in a divorce, or what I've seen in most divorces, is that it's agreed you're going to get a divorce. And then what starts to happen is things start to get bitter. And so what happens is when you get divorced, there's obviously pain because there's a sense of loss. But what becomes very apparent very quickly is that there's got to be a division of assets. And everyone's out for themselves. Everybody wants what they want. Nobody's considering the other party. And so what happens is you go through this whole process where everything's declared and then <clears throat> there's mistrust. And is he declaring everything? Is he hiding any money? Is she hiding anything? What's going on? <clears throat> and then you have to go through a bit of mediation. But it's just ugly. And, and, it, and it literally is ugly. And to the point of you disliking each other very much. <clears throat> and then you go through the divorce. And the, and the final day of the divorce, when it was all settled and done in court, this weight just came off my shoulders. And I remember walking out of the court with my ex-wife together and we said, shall we get the train home together? And it was almost like that moment that was settled, we became friends again. Yeah. 
it was like, now it's done. Everyone knows what they're getting. You know, all I said to myself is, you know what? I can start again. She felt she got what she wanted. And we had a nice conversation going home. And, finally. Uh, yeah, finally. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, I, I don't wish divorce on anyone. But I really, I, I know what my advice to anyone that's thinking about getting married is really, really know what you're getting into because there's a lot more to it than the, the beautiful stuff that happens at the beginning. <laughs> the dating, yeah. There's just the a lot flowers. of nice, the, whole, the beginning of every relationship's amazing. It, it always is. But um, don't settle. If somebody isn't the right person for you, and it's not about looks and, you know, all that. it's about, do, do they share your values? Do they, do they have the, the same expectations in life? Are they, are they heading in the right direction or the same direction as you or are you then? Because if you're not, it will create a problem at some stage. And, and I met an Indian guy when I was a kid in Nigeria called Kant. And it, his wife was Usha, Kant and Usha, my dad's friends. And I said, what makes a good marriage, Kant? And he said, tolerance and endurance. And those two words were the words that resonated with me ever since, you know, tolerance and endurance. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> Amazing. So you've been into multiple countries doing uh, different jobs from Holland, South Africa, to Hong <coughs> Kong, to Thailand. Yeah. What brought you to Dubai and why Dubai? <clears throat> so I was in financial services from 1993, joined the industry, um, lived in the Far East, so Hong Kong, Thailand and Malaysia. I had a great time thought there was a bigger opportunity in West Africa. My dad was there. People in the oil industry earned a lot of money. So I kind of like, that's an opportunity there. Went there and decided to start a company. But I couldn't recruit anywhere, anyone from the UK to come to South Africa, uh, to come to Nigeria, because it's not a great country. The reputation is not very comforting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, so then I decided to go and work for another company and... I remember going to a meeting with them and I turned up and they're like, well, where do you want to go? And I'm like, I don't know. And so we opened up a map on this boardroom table and I was just looking at this map of the world and I went there and pointed at Brazil. And they're like, why? I was like, why not? Never been to South America, it's a big country. Sao Paulo is the economic hub. So it's got to be Sao Paulo, that's got to be the place. Um, and why not? And so I got to Brazil. I loved Brazil. I had a great time. I was responsible then for the whole of the South America. So I was traveling around South America a lot. I loved that. And then moved across to Holland. And I was living in Holland, being responsible in that part of the world. And the company that, that I'd founded with other people, we bought a company here in Dubai. And one of us needed to go and run it. And because I was getting divorced... Could I manage to go back to the UK every second weekend to see my kids if I lived somewhere else, as opposed to every weekend? And I made peace with the fact that I was working all week, spending the weekends with the kids, and really not having a life, to a compromise of spend every other weekend with the kids and have one weekend in this new place that I go to. So it was a toss-up between Geneva and Dubai. Um, and I decided to come to Dubai because we bought this company. And the company had 12 employees, And at the end of the first week, we had two employees. Um, and I had a business I had to grow. I had a business that I had to, you know, it had to achieve. Um, and that's where that journey on Dubai started, you know. Which I, year was that? 2005. Okay. We had an office in the Emirate Atrium building. And um, next to Safa Park, that's where the office was. Crappy office. Uh, and, and Dubai obviously wasn't developed as it is now. Um, 
but I, but I enjoyed it. It was it was it was it was starting all over again. When you came here, what were you most impressed about Dubai? What um, was it? I think some of the architecture was impressive for me. The the ambition of, of the city really impressed me, um, and I and I just felt this was a small town. It felt like. Everyone thought it was a big city, but it's actually it was a small town. And everywhere you went, you could meet people you knew. You'd bump into people that you knew. And there was a lot of people that, that were very ambitious here. Um, and when you've got ambition, okay, and you've got products and services that can be sold, and you've got other like-minded people all hungry to be successful, we all, as human beings, we want to be around people that are like us, don't we? You know, we do. And so when you meet other hungry, driven people, okay, there's the peacock feathers because of a bit of the arrogance and that kind of stuff. But apart from that, you find other people that are willing to put the hours in, work hard. Okay, play hard too, but work hard, play hard. And, and they wanted to make something of themselves. And whether they'd thought that Dubai could do that for them or whether they'd sold themselves on the fact that their, their home country or their home city couldn't, I don't know. But... You know as well as I do, this place is a, a great opportunity if you want to be successful. It's got all of the ingredients you need. You've got to add skills and a lot of hard work, but you can do that. And I think a lot of the time people coming here think that this is a place to be because of that. But I also think that after being here 15 years, there's actually a lot of places in the world like that. I just, I just think we discount them very easily. You know, well, there's nothing in London, but... Come on, you know, if you and I put the kind of effort and energy into doing any business in London that we do here with our work ethic and our desire to grow and learn, we'd make something work course, in London. But you know what? I always find Dubai has something on like more than everywhere else. It's like, first of all, the weather. You're always happy here. It's always sunny. You know, this I feel for me, that's the fuel. It recharges my body. Really? The sun. Yeah. I mean, like when I go to London after three days, I'm like, get me out of here. It's raining, it's dark, it's grey, you feel people are unhappy. Yeah, but we have, we have five days of summer. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> the end of July is like amazing. Yeah, but there's other places, there's Miami, yeah. there's, there, there's other places that, true, that the weather is... That's true, but Miami is also a very ghetto place to be and It's like in here it has the combination of the safety. Everything is here, everything is nearby, you know everyone. I don't know, you feel like it's somewhere like you cannot go beyond it. Like for me, I'm telling you, I travel the world. Wherever I go, after a week, I'm like, get me back to Dubai. There's yeah. something that when I come here and the door, you know, of the airports, they open, I'm like, ah, oh, I'm home. Really? Yeah. And I don't see myself living elsewhere. I can, yeah. every two months, I need a vacation, by the way. Okay. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I need to get out, you know, to refresh myself. But yeah, I have to come back here. It became like home. Even when I go to Lebanon, I promise you, I feel like a stranger. Just want to come to Dubai. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. I was 50 this year and... As when anyone has a big birthday, there's, there's a lot of the time a nice video that's made from messages from all of your friends and family. And that really made me want to go home. Spending time watching that video with all the people that I hadn't given time to that are from my home country. Friends that I should have spent more time with. I, I should have prioritized more than I did. It just made me want to go home and just spend time with these people. Um, and so much so that I did for, for my birthday was in May from May through to probably the end of July there was a big part of me that was like it's time to go home um, that's gone now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there was that period so um, Spencer Dubai was like a healing 
place for you mentally, physically, a new start? Yeah, it was, yeah. It had that aspect to it as well, starting something. I, I can always heal over anything when I'm busy at work. And I don't know why it is, you know, deaths of friends and family or relationship issues. Work gives me something to focus on. And the more I focus on that, the less I have to kind of engross myself in the problems or the challenges or the, the heartaches or the pains that exist in my life, just like everybody else has. And, and because I'm good at work and I like to work, it's easy, easy to do that. But don't you feel sometimes you're neglecting yourself? I really feel it. I see neglecting myself. Yeah, you wake up at 5 a.m. every day. Coming back to persistency, you wake up at 5 a.m. straight away. Whoever sees your story, you're driving, singing, with this beautiful voice, <laughs> going to the gym, hour and a half. You always see you on the floor trying to to breathe. You know, then come back, shower, and do your stuff. And what I always see you is like you're always around people, training them, trying to help them from morning until 8, 9 p.m. Mm -hmm. Every day, you even do it on Fridays. Mm -hmm. So don't you feel maybe you're overdoing it in a way that you're not giving love and space to yourself? It's a really good question. And, and I think if you asked other people that, I think that a lot of people might have found themselves getting into stuff that was a little bit too much. But when you do something you love so much, and when you feel it's so important to do, it doesn't seem like work. Now, don't get me wrong. Do I feel tired after it? Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like work, so I'm happy to do it. When, when you look at the getting up early and working out, when I first started working in London, I would wake up at 4.30, leave at 5, get to London for 6, because I could beat the traffic. So from the age of 19 onwards, I've always got up at that time of day. And everywhere I've lived, I've had the same routine. So I don't see it as a challenge. What I see as a little bit of a challenge is being married to my wife, okay, who thinks that going to bed at 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night is for crazy people. <laughs> <laughs> and she wants to go to bed later. But, you know, again, it comes down to compromise. And if, if, tomorrow, if, I, if I wasn't doing anything tomorrow morning and I didn't set my alarm and it's the weekend tomorrow, I didn't set my alarm, I'm pretty sure that I'd wake up at five o'clock. Everybody is used to it. Yeah. yeah. And so do I give myself enough time? Well, I think that you know, recently I took my, 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 my boating exams. Well, that was me doing something for me. That was me doing something for me. You know, I go hiking on a Friday morning or riding my bike. That's for me. Um, I really enjoy being out in the outdoors, you know, and, and every now and then I go and climb a mountain or something, and that's for me. And I don't think of anything. While I'm doing those things, I'm literally in the moment just thinking about the next step, and I love that too. Could, could, could there be more places here in the UAE to go climbing? Could there be some snow-capped mountains? You know, could, there, could there be more, uh, you know, more accommodating weather through the summer months so you can do stuff outdoors? Yeah, of course, but nowhere's perfect. So what I'm wondering is like, you have lots of successful companies. You have it all. You got married again. You live in a beautiful place. Basically, you have everything that anyone can ask for. Why you exhaust yourself with people just trying to show them the light in life, even though most of them, they don't want to learn. They're just here next to you to try to suck on this beautiful energy and forget about it like after 30 minutes. 
For sure, it's not the yeah. money because this has been settled long time ago. So I'm really interested to know what makes you want to stay around these people that we all say, if you want to keep growing in life, stay away from them. Why you like this, always the light behind the tunnel and you're not getting anything out of it. So I had a conversation with somebody we both know very well, Grant. And this is an, an important part of, of my understanding of it. I have this overwhelming desire. I want people to win. I want people to be successful. And I'm a salesperson, and so I really identify with anybody selling anything, whether that's as an employee or as their own business owner. I want people to win. And I don't think people are given the right tools and support and mindset to win. And, but everybody can. But they're, they're, they're talking themselves out of it more than they're talking themselves into it. And so I feel like I'm on a bit of a mission and I need, I need people to, to change and evolve and grow. And if I can make a difference to just a few people, then those things that I do on social media are worthwhile. I think that, you know, when I, when I said to, I said, I was having dinner with Grant and um, I said, I just want everyone to win. And he said, well, that's going to be a miserable life. <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> he said, because most people don't want to win. Most people are broken. Most people are now, everyone talks about winning, but nobody's prepared to put the, many people are not prepared to put the work in. So what you have to do is spread your net much wider because the percentage won't change. It will be a few percent. Let's say 10% on a great day. For let's say 10%. He said, so the bigger the numbers, the 10% becomes a bigger number. So keep spreading your net wider because you're having a difference on some people. And you've got to remember, I get lots of positive feedback as well. I get people writing to me, people, you know, sending me messages and stuff, telling me about the difference what I do does, you know. Just this morning, okay, somebody sent me a message. Oh, I've got to get up now, have I as well, you know, as they're watching me get up. If I can help people move, if I can help people, you know, realize their dreams rather than live a life of mediocrity or live a life of regret, and if, if, if I play a small part in just for a small number of people, then, then I'm going to do it. What does Spencer regret in his life? So, yeah, I think that that's what I'm going to do. So what do I regret? Did you say what do I regret? Yeah. When I was a kid, I wanted to, when I was a kid, when I was like 19, 18, 19, I wanted to be a TV presenter. Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted to be. And I was told you can't be a TV presenter unless you study a degree in journalism. And I, that wasn't going to happen because I wasn't intelligent, intelligent enough to get to university. So I disregarded that. And ever since I've been making content, there's, there's been a part of me that's like, I should be on TV. I was meant to be. And when I watched, I don't know, interviews with TV hosts, with celebrities, I would shout at the TV going, ask them something better than that, you yeah. know? <laughs> ask them something worth knowing. And it just really used to frustrate me. And the one, the one regret I have around that is that I could have become a TV presenter. I didn't pursue it because someone told me something once and I listened to them. And that's why, why I couldn't be it. So I regret that. Um, a lot of people say to me, Spence, you're such a good dad. But I look back and I think I'm not that good a dad because a good dad would have been by his daughter's sides, not in another country. And so 
people that, yeah, but some people's dads never go visit. And I'm like, that doesn't make me a good dad. That makes me a, good, a better dad than a bad dad. It doesn't make me a great dad. And I think that I wish I'd have spent more time with my kids, guiding them. Because as a parent from a distance, you can't, you can't have the same influence. And, and, and you want to teach them values. And, you know, I, I want to be, you know, I used to fly home for a piano recital or a very, very bad violin recital. Uh, but I could have been at every school play. I, I could have been at stuff like that, but I wasn't. And, and so I regret that. But other than that. It's very interesting because I don't see it the way you see it. Uh, what I'm trying to say in here, like, now your daughters are very proud of the person that you've became and who you are, right? They call me Hollywood. <laughs> Here you go. So maybe if you have stayed in the UK, that place would have drained you, got you a very dark places. Maybe you would have been an alcoholic or a junkie, got forbidden, <laughs> and they wouldn't be proud of you. So that distance Maybe you were not in front of them, but I am sure now the man you are, that's someone they're looking up to it. And later on, when they're going to have kids, they were like, you have to be like your granddad. He was a legend. <laughs> you have to follow his steps. You know what? That's a really nice thing to say. But I think that the, when, when I was a kid, my dad went to live overseas. So I was seven or eight years old and he moved overseas. And I was, st I was with him one holiday. And I, and I said to one of my dad's friends, I don't know why my dad has to live overseas. And he gave me a book of verse. And in this verse, there was a verse called The Men That Don't Fit In. And it was about men that have this desire to want to go and see the world, explore and never settle. And at the time I read it, I could understand it from one point of view. And that was, you know, maybe he you know, likes experience in different countries. But it wasn't that he doesn't, he likes experience in different countries. It's the fact that you didn't feel you fit in where you belonged. And where I lived in the UK, I don't, th I, I thought, I always thought I was bigger than that. I always thought there was more. And some of it came from the bullies of having to prove them as well, I'm sure. So, well, I, I just hope my kids are proud of me, but hey, uh, at the end of the day, I can only be who I can be, and, uh, and, and I think all of us just, you know, when we, when we identify areas we could be better at, it's just sometimes a bit disappointing that we weren't as good as we could be. Because if you have your time again, you could be really good. So let's say, fast forward a few years, um, your kids will see this uh, podcast on YouTube, or they will even listen to it on a podcast. They will, yeah. What would you like to leave them a message for the two of them? I think for my kids, it's got to be the single most important thing in life is to be happy. Everything else is irrelevant. And don't ever let someone tell you what the measurement of happiness is. You decide. And whilst you're, you're young and you're going through studies right now, Whatever you pursue, do not pursue something that doesn't make you happy. Whether that's a relationship, whether that's a job, whether that's an industry, whether that's a hobby, don't pursue something that doesn't make you truly happy. And there's nothing wrong in trying things to decide whether you like them or not. 
Um, and don't forget that I'm the best parent out of the, my mum, out of your mum and me. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm only kidding, but um, <laughs> but yeah, I think I just I just, I just I want them deeply want them to be happy. I just want them to smile every day. I don't care whether they're billionaires or they're working as road sweepers. It really doesn't bother me. What what bothers me is they get up every day with purpose, with joy. They're kind to people and they smile every day and they come home at the end of every day and they've got a story to tell from something that happened that they can tell with enthusiasm. Amazing, Spencer. Moving from the family side, let's get to the business side. Um, just want to know, uh, how do you keep yourself positive and happy and you don't get all of this negativity around you to get to your mind? So it's like all day, you're training people that they're not happy with their life. Let's be, let's be real, you know what I mean? And everyone has something to say always. Oh yeah, this is not working for me because of this and that. And you hear this over 12, 15 hours a day. So how do you get this away from getting to your mind? How do you block it always? Well, number one, I have an answer for most people like that whenever they're in that place. But also, not everyone says that. There's lots of people saying the good stuff too. It's not, it's, you know, it's not a, a poison chalice. It's not a curse. Mm. And so it's part of what goes with the job. I think that the, the work itself isn't, isn't a problem. I think that, that, that I've had my own demons to deal with. I've had my emotional problems to deal with. I've, you know, I nearly killed, killed myself some years ago. I've, I've been through all kinds of psychological challenges along the way. And that, that is me being busy. You're never going to convince everyone. You know, you go to a Tony Robbins event and watch the room, okay? When Tony turns the music up and he wants you to dance or I mean, do whatever the activity is, you've still got those people, haven't you, going, I'm not doing that, I'm not getting involved. And you have those people and they're, they're always there. You know, and, you, and you wonder why they bothered paying the money to go. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it's like, that's why you're there. But you just, in society, you always have that, whether that's at a, a football match, there's, there's, there's the people that are, you know, the guy plays okay and they cheer him on and there's the other people standing there going, he's shit, you know. That, 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 that's, that's just part of society. Even in our own family we see it. So it doesn't get me down, it really doesn't. And the more someone pushes against me, the more it challenges me, which, is the, which brings the best out of me. When it's mundane, when it's like, well, I'm just not doing it, that's one thing. When it's, I'm not doing it because I disagree with you because of this, 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 and this, bring it, okay? Let's have that conversation. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't, it's like, you know, you're in the real estate game. You know, there's people out there that waste your time. You go and show them 20 units and they don't buy. There's people that say they've got certain money they don't have. There's, you know, you get messed around, you know, and if we were selling cars, we would get messed around. And if we were selling IT, we would get messed around. And if we built a business doing X or Y, there'd be challenges. You know, you know I spoke to a guy I've got to know very well, Hader Khan, who's the CEO of Bayut. And... When I spoke to Hayda and his two brothers about how they raised money, it's a really interesting story. They didn't know what they were doing. They'd never raised money before, but they knew they needed to do it. And they went to a hundred different networking events, a hundred. And at every networking event, as they were talking about their stuff, they found nobody that could help them. And I'm like, did you know who you were looking for? They're like, did you know what you were asking for? They're like, no. They genuinely didn't know. And they're smart guys, but they'd never done it. 
And so they, so they, they just faced a lot of doors being closed on them because they didn't know. And then, then somebody actually contacted them and said, look, I've heard about what you're doing. Some of my friends have been at a couple of, event, of events you've been at. And so by being at those events, they've got the contact. The contact's like, we're interested in doing something. And then they've gone down the journey. But even then, it took them another 30 or 40 different introductory meetings to find somebody to lend the money. So how much rejection is that you're facing all day? What a slog that must be. Imagine you and I going to 100 networking events to get nowhere. I go to more than that. <laughs> I still get the nose, but I mean, I know what I want. So eventually it's there, I'm gonna find it. Yeah, but 100, 100, 100 evenings. When the why is known, yeah. Yeah, the yes will be found eventually. Absolutely. No matter what Absolutely. you do. Spencer, what was your happiest moment in life? Okay, this is gonna, the, the first time I won an award for being the top salesperson in the world was in 1999. And I didn't think I was gonna win. There was a guy called Alex Prentice, and he was my kind of like my nemesis. And during the course of the year, he would just drop in these massive figures after a week of being in this location, and I'd be like, and I'd be slogging six days a week all the way through the year. And then he'd go and take four weeks off and I'd, I, and I'd go past him. And then he'd come back after four weeks and I'd still be working. And he would just drop in these big figures. And it was like, how am I ever going to beat him? And the, it was in 1999. And uh, two, a couple of things happened. My boss, we were in Mexico City. My boss went for a walk with me and we went to a Cartier shop and he was trying on watches. And he said, what do you think of that watch, Spencer? I'm like, oh, it's very nice. Yeah, very nice not thinking anything about it. And he said to the guy behind the counter, yeah, it's not, not, not right for me, but thank you. And we walked off and we got a coffee. He said, that was beautiful, that watch, wasn't it? And I'm like, yeah, it was amazing, you know, amazing. But again, thought nothing of it. Anyway, come to the evening of the event, uh, fifth place, fourth place, third place, and then it was up for second and first place. And in second place, and I'm expecting my name to be called, and in second place, Alex Prentice. And that meant I'd won. And it was just huge. I had won. And not only had I won, I went up on stage and they gave me this big trophy, which I've still got at home. They gave me this big trophy, but the boss gave me a bag. It was, it was a, a bag of something. And, I, and he said, this is just a personal thank you for me. And I went back to the table in the, in the, in the ballroom and I, and I, obviously everyone was saying, well done and whatnot. And then I opened the box. And when I opened the box, it was the watch. The watch. Wow. And, um, and I still have the watch. It's at home now. I've had it since 1999. And um, that was a really proud moment for me. That was like me. I had become, you know, out of hundreds of people, the top person in the world. And at the same time, my region, my part of the world had become number one as well. And so I won these two awards on this night. So that was a really happy moment. Another happy moment was um, funny things. Get my, my eldest daughter, when she passed her driving test, buying her a car and giving her the car, that was a really special moment. It was really special. She couldn't believe it. Um, that was a really special moment. I you think. Were like, it, take it before I change my mind. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I rented it. Yeah, yeah but it, seeing her face was very special. Um, so they're, they're proud moments. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that, I think that when, when, when I achieve something, I feel really good. 
but I probably don't spend enough time celebrating that success because I'm moving too quickly onto the, on, on, onwards, whether it's onto the next thing or onwards. But yeah, that was, uh, that was special. People say about your marriage, your wedding day, and when your kids are born, and I, I think that's rubbish. Um, when a woman gives birth to children, it, it's not fun. All right. Of course, if you're in the room, it's not fun at all. <laughs> and if you're in the room, it's not fun. Okay, you know, is that a day that you're proud you've become a father? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but is is it happy in the? No, the whole day isn't. But um, yeah, when you when you when you get somewhere and you achieve something you've worked so hard for, that you'll know this. You know what it's like. It's just you know you you're like, come on, you know. It's just all of a sudden there's significance in 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 so many numbers and and there's acknowledgement and there's appreciation and there's recognition and you feel like yeah. you're not even flying you yeah. know? you're not yeah. even walking you know? like, and, there's, and there's the people that celebrate your win and there's the people that hate you because you won too but they can't do anything but shake your hand you know and it's yeah. that i know you hate that i've won but i did so what can i do you know <laughs> and so i kind of understand how lewis hamilton feels when he wins you know they all hate that he wins but yeah, he's just like, I'm you know. still here. <laughs> um, so they're, they're, they're the moments that are special when you do that. And, um, you know, building the company that we've built with Danielle, that's that, to, 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 you know, essentially own a company that's worth $100 million is just insane. I can't even get my head around that. Yeah. Um, and I would have never, if you'd have said that to me five years ago, you know, you're going to build a company worth that kind of money, I'd have said to you, you're nuts. You know, I genuinely would have said you're nuts. But to build a company that's become worth so much money and have a really good, awesome team around me, that's, that's really significant too. Don't give me the money because it would probably cause a problem for my life if you give me the yeah. money. Because <laughs> I'd probably be a pain. But um, yeah, that's, that, that, that gives me a lot of satisfaction. What is it enough for you? When we want to see you like... Uh having the time only for you, for your wife, for your kids, see the world, do this stuff. Like, and what do you want to reach until you feel like that's it? I've done my purpose, that's my legacy. Let me enjoy myself now more. I, I don't think I'm, I, I had three months off work once, it was horrible. I need to work, I need to be busy, I need to be active, I, I, I can't sit still. And so I'm not the kind of person that could go, you know, if you said to me, Spencer, here's a gift from me to you, two tickets for you and your wife, first class and a five-star hotel in the Maldives. That would be the worst gift you could ever give someone like me. <laughs> It'd be like, what, what have I got? Yeah, four days. What, whole days? Yeah. <laughs> I've got to stay for four whole days there, beloved. Um, that's, that's almost like a prison sentence for me. I, I, need, I need to be busy. So I don't think I'll ever stop working. Uh, as long as I'm healthy. Um, will I spend less time in Dubai in the future? Probably, um, because I like the mountains and I like to be near snow, and so I want to ski more, I want to climb more, I want to ride my bike more. I mean, I, I love riding in Europe. Um, so there's things like that that I want to do more of, and so I think I'll make more time to do those uh, in the next few years. I'm 50 now, so I've probably got 10 good years in me. Um, of being fired up and then I've got 10 good years of being an old man that thinks he's really yeah. wise but the Grumpy kids guy, yeah. <laughs> the old guy, yeah. you don't know what you're doing back in the 70s when I was born uh, this is like uh, I cannot get enough from you we can sit here and talk for hours just like uh, this is the final question I want to ask you and it's not even a question it's more to an advice 
for this young people, 17, 18 years old, they have no idea what to do in life. Um, what are the mistakes that you want to save them from doing by guiding them, like telling them what to do in their life? I don't want kids to go to university unless they're going to study something that's going to help a career they already know they want. So let's say you want to be a doctor, fair enough. Um, I don't think kids should all think you can make money quickly and you should all be entrepreneurs. I don't think that at all. I think every child, every teenager, one really important life skill is to learn how to sell because they've got to sell themselves for a job interview. They've got to sell themselves in working with teams and ideas and stuff like that. So I think they need to learn how to sell. And my advice would be to any kid, don't feel you have to do anything and don't feel bad if you try something and it doesn't work. You know, Jeff Bezos worked at McDonald's. There's too many stories, there's too many great stories about people that worked at McDonald's, isn't there? But people still have that kind of shame factor about being behind that counter. But gosh, there's some great stories. But I think you, you learn lots of stuff, you know. My daughter works uh, in, um, in Costa Coffee, my youngest. She has learned so many skills that she wouldn't have learned anywhere else, just doing a weekend job in Costa Coffee. Yeah. Customer service, engaging with people, dealing with complaints, handling it, solving problems, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so try things. If you don't know what you want to do, it's, it's okay. If mum and dad says you need to go and study business and finance at university and you don't want to, don't. Because how are you going to get the best out of it? It's just going to be, it's going to be purgatory. It's going to be hard work. So just don't. Um, but if you want to make all your own decisions and you live under somebody else's roof, be very careful to understand that you don't get to make all the decisions all the time. So always give everything your best. Try whatever you try, try it really hard. Really, really try it. Really give it all you've got. And if you give it all you've got and you try it for three or four months and it doesn't work, no problem. But don't try things without giving them your best. Because I think that your best is required. And also don't think you're worth anything when you're 17 to an employer. You're not worth anything, all right? That's why they don't pay you much. They're gonna teach you, yeah. They're gonna teach you. And so you're getting paid in education. You're not getting paid in money. When your education and your skills and your experience are higher, you'll get more money. So don't think you're gonna get rich quick. And um, yeah, just be kind to people. Just, just in, in whatever you do, just be nice to people. Because you'll find that people can't fight people that are nice. There's nothing you can do with a nice person. There's, all you can do is accept them. But you can, attack, you can attack an aggressive monster. So just be nice. And when you lose your way, Spencer Lodge is always available on Facebook, on Instagram, <laughs> on every possible platform that you can even think about. Feel free to reach him. This guy is super active. He always answers all of these messages. And the best part, he gives always the free advices. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Spencer. It was a pleasure having you. It's been lovely talking to you, man. Thank you so Thank much. You.